Good morning, and you're listening to In The Live Radio. We're about to begin the next edition of our Changing Minds Moving Forward series of programmes, and this week we're listening in to a public meeting arranged by SNP Commonweal Group. The theme of the meeting is Dignity in Dying. We'll hear from Ali Thompson, who is Director of Dignity in Dying Scotland, and also from Josh Menny, who is an assisted dying campaigner. The event is chaired by Rory Steele of SNP Commonweal Group. There have been assisted dying bills brought forward in Holyrood previously by MSPs Margot MacDonald and, after her death, by Patrick Harvey. Neither of those bills were successful, despite high support among the general public in Scotland for a change in Scottish law. There is going to be another bill brought forward in the new session of Holyrood. These proposals will be brought forward by Liberal Democrat MSP Liam MacArthur and aim to introduce a right to an assisted death for terminally ill, mentally competent adults. And a cross-party steering group of MSPs have outlined their support of the bill in an open letter. So this meeting that you're about to hear took place in March this year, so very much in the lead-up to the Holyrood elections. Alison Thompson lays out the position taken by Dignity in Dying Scotland, and Josh Menny describes his very personal experience of being present and helping at the death of his grandmother. There is a little bit of interference in Alison's broadband connection, but don't let it put you off listening to what she has to say. So here's the meeting coming up now. Right, we'll crack on then. Um, so thanks everyone for coming along. Um, obviously tonight's discussion is on assisted dying and we've been joined uh, by Ali Thompson, who is the Director for Scotland for Dignity and Dying and also SNP activist uh, Josh Armeni. Um, who has been working within the SNP on this issue. So there was a recent general meeting of the SNP Common Wheel Group, and the members of that meeting chose to, to back the, the motion put forward by Josh to support the policy. So this is something that we would support. We would certainly encourage um, MSPs, MPs and councillors within the SNP and all other parties to support it also and also any uh, potential uh, candidates for the Scottish Parliament would also encourage you to support it. So rather than uh, me talking, um, we'll just get right down to it. And um, Ali, I will make you the host so you can uh, begin. Okay, thanks very much, Rory, and thanks so much to everybody um, for joining. Um, I'm going to start off by putting my case in a nutshell and then I can expand a little bit more on it um, before we get to the kind of questions which might focus a little bit more on the process of how we achieve um, assisted dying in Scotland. So in a nutshell, Dignity in Dying believes that the Scottish Parliament must legalise assisted dying. Far too many Scots currently face a bad death. And the current law, which is a blanket ban on assisted dying, creates heartache and injustice. People facing a bad death just now, the choices that they have are 
to go to Switzerland to a clinic such as Dignitas for an assisted death, to starve and dehydrate to death, to take matters into their own hands and end their own life, or to continue to suffer. That's not all dying people, that is the people for whom palliative care no longer works and they're faced in a bad day. None of those choices are in any way an acceptable alternative to a safe and compassionate law, a law that 87% of Scots support. I'm really glad that the, the Common Wheel Group is behind um, assisted dying because in my view, it really is Scotland's next um, most urgent human rights reform. It's a progressive reform and it's a reform rooted in compassion and social justice. So in this role, I've worked alongside so many people who have wanted or needed and people who still want and need an assisted death and aren't able to access one. And also alongside a lot of bereaved relatives um, who've witnessed really awful tragic deaths that have had such a lingering and long-lasting negative effect on them and on their grief process. And in each case, I make a promise that we will take those stories, those personal experiences and make them political, that we'll take them to the heart of the Scottish Parliament, to decision makers who've got the power to change this, and that we'll keep it on the political and public agenda. So next week, we're going to be holding to that promise. And with exactly a month to go to the um, election on the 6th of May, we're launching our latest um, advertising campaign, which is aimed at candidates. And the campaign is based around letting um, parliamentary candidates know that assisted dying is an election issue, that 87% of Scots support this, and that it's something that they will be asked to vote on in the next parliamentary section. Um, I want to be really clear about what it is that we will be asking MSPs to vote on. We work alongside a couple of other organisations in Scotland, Friends at the End and the Humanist Society Scotland, and with those organisations we're making a proposal for an assisted dying bill that's got really clear and upfront safeguards. And those safeguards are that this bill would apply to dying adults in Scotland to terminally ill, mentally competent adults. And dying Scots really, really need this reform because at the moment, the current law is broken and unsustainable. We did some modelling and we looked at a situation where even if everybody in Scotland had access to absolute gold standard palliative care and the palliative care available in Scotland, my own family has, has made use of it, it is excellent. If everybody had access to that excellent care, 11 Scots a week would still face a bad death. And that's a really conservative estimate, but it's 11 too many. They're effectively the collateral damage of an unjust law. I mentioned palliative care there because I think it's important to be really clear that we support better and further investment in palliative care. Some of our opponents will be very keen to present to parliamentary candidates that this is some sort of false dichotomy, that it's either or. You can either have palliative care or assisted dying. Absolutely not. What dying people need is both. They need excellent care and the choice of an assisted death, if that's right for them. In this job, so there's, there's two things I hear a lot. The first is that we treat our pets much better than we treat our humans. We wouldn't let our 
create suffer in the way that so many humans do at the end of life. And secondly, that we're going to look back one day and wonder what took us so long, why we let such suffering occur now. Because suffering is occurring now. One thing that really stuck in my mind was when somebody, um, a grieving daughter, told me, um, and this is a direct quote, I turned up at the hospital and I was so sad that my mum wasn't going to die that day. I was praying for my mum to die, which is the darkest and most awful thought you can have. I mentioned the current choices available to people who are facing a bad death now. And one of those pre-pandemic was to go to Switzerland and have an assisted death at a clinic such as Dignitas. There's a couple of um, lovely women in air, uh, Tracy and Norma, who are going to be joining Josh in our advertising campaign as part of the election. Tracy and Norma both have terminal cancer and they both want to be able to choose um, a dignified and peaceful death. And they both looked into going to Dignitas and neither can afford the £10,000 that it would cost. There's a lot of issues with outsourcing this problem to Switzerland, but for me, it is firmly a social justice issue. The current system creates deep, deep inequalities. This means that Tracy and Norma are both sadly currently contemplating taking matters into their own hands and looking at how they can end their own lives in the simplest way possible without implicating their loved ones or leaving too much of a mess behind. A really awful thought to be having when they should be enjoying the time that they have remaining now. The point people made about history judging us and that we'll look back and wonder why we didn't act sooner. I think we can look at other causes and, and see really clear parallels votes for women, race segregation, abortion, equal marriage. Each person who, like Josh, steps up and really makes their personal experience political has joined part of a movement, a movement rooted in social justice, a movement for change whose time has come. We know that the fault lines in our society, of which there are many, are caused by a hardline majority who are holding on to old ideas that they're determined to force onto everybody else and that people have had to fight for rights that are really obvious to us now and it's going to be the same and as we emerge from this pandemic there's really never been a better time to reform how we die and to give dying people those rights that they so desperately need. If we look to around the world we can see that other countries such as um, parts of America, Australia, New Zealand, most recently Spain have all opted for assisted dying with their dying citizens. And it's really time for Scotland to do the same with the introduction of pragmatic and compassionate legislation. I've got a few final points. Um, one is that quite rightly, um, because this should be interrogated, all, all proposals for new uh, uh, legislation should be properly interrogated. But I would also say that anybody who's concerned about safety should support assisted dying because safety comes from transparency, empowerment, fairness and equality. It doesn't come from the current situation where things are done underground, overseas or behind closed doors. That's not safe and it doesn't protect vulnerable people. The other thing that people sometimes say, oh, I think it's a complex issue. 
and I would like to, to sort of say in response, it's absolutely not a complex issue. For me, it's really, really simple. We need to respect the person who's dying and we need to provide them with what they need in order to have a good death. Complexity is what happens now. It's Tracy and Norma trying to work out how they can end their own lives, leaving like the least mess and, and um, having the most certainty that they'll do it properly so they don't end up in a worse situation. Complexity is the people that I've spoken to who have been planning to have an assisted death at Dignitas and they have to try and disguise it to family and friends as a relaxing city break in Zurich. Complexity is the mix of emotions you feel when you watch a loved one who's stopped eating and drinking and has taken days to die from starvation and dehydration. Those things are complex. A safe, progressive, fair, humane law with the absolute safeguards built in isn't complex. It's the, it's the right thing to do. And um, I'm here tonight uh, to try and get people to speak to as many um, prospective candidates as possible to persuade those people who've got a real chance of sitting in our next Scottish Parliament, that when this bill comes before them, to vote in favour, to be part of that growing, growing movement for change and for the, the, the hand of history to kind of um, favour the decision that the Scottish Parliament makes. Thanks, Rory. Brilliant, thanks very much. So next we'll go to Josh. Hi everyone and uh, thank you Rory and the rest of the Commonwealth group for inviting myself and Ali along. It's a, a pleasure to, to speak to you about this again. Um, last time I was at this group meeting, um, he's, uh, he's passed my, my resolution on the, the, the topic of dignity and dying, so I was really, really happy with that. Um, so quickly a bit about myself. I've been a member of the SNP since 2014. Uh, I joined a day after the Scottish Independence Referendum. Um, and I am currently a, a, a candidate in the North East for the SNP. I'm ninth, so I'm not going to get elected. I'm, I'm pretty realistic about that, but um, still technically a candidate, but it's very important we do talk to um, our other candidates who do have a realistic chance of getting in uh, to Parliament about this. So, you know, my, my initial interest in this policy um, probably started when I was a, a teenager, to be honest with you. Um, I had a family member, my aunt, my my auntie Teresa, um, who you know lived with MS, and um, you know, dignity and dying was something she she'd considered for a, a long time as she was as her condition was progressing and uh, her ability to function and do day to day things for herself, you know, was was less she was less able to do those sort of things. She explored a lot of options um, and. You know, going to Dignitas in Switzerland was 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 one of them, um, but she she passed away um, as of from complications of MS. But she she didn't end up going down that route. But I remember as a family, it's something we talked about. Um, we'd looked at you know, like when she was living with MS, we looked at getting stem cell treatments and all these experimental stuff. And then when those weren't viable options, you know, Teresa was very vocal about you know choosing that option to go to um, Dignitas. But more more recently, um, I'm sure a lot of people in this call already know, I've been very vocal about it on social media, um, in the newspapers, all over a, a range of media sources about um, 
what happened to my grandma at the end of last year. Um, so she passed away at the end of August, if my memory serves correctly. Um, and, you know, it's it's the most horrific thing I've ever witnessed in my life. Um, but I'll, I'll go to the start a wee bit. So I was actually, I, I, I live between Glasgow and Aberdeen. And at the time I was in Glasgow. Um, and I've always been a caretaker for my grandma. I've always been a carer. So I got a phone call from my mum saying, you know, Josh, um, grandma's not well at all. It's not looking good. I think you should probably come up um, like say your goodbyes and stuff like that. So um, she said the doctors are going to, well, the doctor said she's only got hours or a couple of days left to live. So I, I left that night and I, I remember getting to Aberdeen at like two, one, two in the morning or something and see my grandma and seeing her in the state she was, you know, at the, at the time <clears throat> she she was unconscious, couldn't speak. Um, and we were told, you know, well, this is it, really. Um, she's going to pass away. Then she perked up again, um, was able to talk and was coherent and and stuff. Um, but yeah, so my, my grandma was actually, the reason she was so ill was she was diagnosed with a, a cancerous tumour in her throat and uh, multiple organ failure. And the hospital said, look, we're going to take you into hospital, we can treat you. Um, but, you know, you've only got one vocal cord left and the, the treatment we can provide for you for the cancer's tumour in your throat will quite possibly remove your ability to speak. It'll, it'll damage your last vocal cord and you won't be able to speak. Um, and the, 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 um, the quality of life you've got will be drastically reduced. Um, so my grandma says, she was 85 years old, she said, I'd be happy to just, you know, go home and, and die at home with my family and have carers come in. Um, so that's what happens. So carers are coming in three times a day for half hour at a time. And in between that, I basically moved in with my grandma um, to care for her in between the carers' visits. I was her primary caretaker at that time. Um, so I was there for a few days and then her, her condition seriously got worse. Um so the decision was made with my grandma and between doctors and nurses that, you know, it was she now she became a, a choking hazard. Um so it was now unsafe for her to actually eat or drink anything. So I remember my grandma just saying, Well, can't you just end it now for me so I don't have to go through um, you know, those days of insufferable pain because the pain she was in with her multiple organ failure, even even though she was on the highest doses of morphine and they're giving her medications to knock her out for periods of time, basically, because when she was conscious, she was yelping, screaming, begging to get to die, basically. And it's not something you'd ever want your your a family member to, to see. Um you don't ever want to see your, your grandma going through that. And you know, not only me. Um, I always say this, like, it's the worst thing I've experienced in my life, but it's nothing in comparison to what my grandma was experiencing. Like, witnessing that is will definitely live for me, live with me for the rest of my life, my mum's life and my family's lives. And witnessing someone you love so much and you've cared for, who's been a role model to your whole life, asking you to die. Um, but... Yeah, so when the decision was made to take her off the food and fluids, doctors and nurses advised us to says, you know, we'll do everything we can to make her comfortable. We'll give her this medications, um, these medications. And, um, you know, people who are off food and fluids don't live longer than three days, four days max. So that's what we were told. 
um, but that's not what happened. Um, my grandma then lived in, in the most insufferable, horrendous pain you can ever imagine and or see someone go through for 13 days without food or fluids. So I was in Aberdeen for the 18 days. I was there for five days before she took on food and fluids, and then she survived without food or fluids for 13 days. Can you imagine? And the reason for that being was because her body was so filled with fluid, it was basically absorbing the fluid over those 13 days and keeping her body hydrated. Um, but, you know, I, I remember, you know, she had carers coming in three times a day, um, looking after her. There was a point the last sort of few days where, you know, my grandma was starting to, to drown on her own bodily fluids. So she then lost the capability to speak. Um, after that, so we, we we had to continuously empty her mouth and throat of our own bodily fluids. I I did that. Our grandson, and I'm a carer. I, I worked in social care with people with learning disabilities, physical disabilities, elderly people. I've done similar things like that for people, but it's never ever something you should ever do for your a loved one. It's the most horrible thing I've ever seen or done ever in my life and it makes I've actually got goosebumps and I feel emotional talking about it because it's so and I keep saying this but seeing someone you love in that state when they've asked to die repeatedly because they're in so much pain their quality of life is absolutely shit absolutely horrendous um so yeah she obviously eventually my, my, my grandma passed away um, but during that, when my grandma was coherent speaking, you know, she'd go through phases of being conscious and unconscious. Um, within those 13 days, you know, I remember speaking to my grandma. Um, her name was Charlotte Mary Ryan. Um, and she, I made a promise to her, basically, you know, when we're talking about it. She's, she maybe promised, Josh, please make sure no one has to go through what, I, what I'm going through. Because she knew I was like, involved in, I was like the SNP guy in the family kind of thing. She knew she seen as like her political grandson in the SNP. So I made that promise her that I would do everything I possibly could. And that's why I've gotten, you know, so involved with Dignity and Dying and Ali Thompson from um, Dignity and Dying, which has been fantastic. But a little bit about, about my grandma. I mean, she was a devoutly Catholic woman, really, oh my goodness, so religious. She was born, her name was, when she was born, her name was Charlotte Ryan. Um, but she was so religious. Um, she loved the Virgin Mary. She changed her name to Mary Ryan. This is this is how uh, you know devoutly religious my grandma was. Uh, I'm 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 an atheist myself, but you know just to give a bit of background about her. And a lot of the opposition we get from uh, for dignity and dying is from religious groups, um, because they you know particularly Catholicism, which was also what my grandma was. She was a devout Catholic, Roman Catholic. Um, but, you know, even she believed that people should have the choice. And I always think, you know, in, when, when we come to policymaking, it should, we should always take a rights-based approach to policymaking. So if something does go against an individual's religious beliefs, then they can choose not to take that route. Um, but someone who opts for a different, um, you know, a different route, they, they, they have that right to, you know, take ownership of ending their, their lives. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's things I'm forgetting because, you know, 
uh, honestly, uh, as Ali was saying, you know, when you go through that, this grief process, it is a bit like PTSD. Like, I've talked about this so many times now, and I get emotional every time I'm talking about it. Um, and I always, there's always a million things I forget to mention later. I'm like, oh, we should mention this, and we should, we should mention that, to, to, to bring home the harsh reality of what it was like. Um, but I remember it was the day before my grandma passed away. You know, I was in the living room because we'd sometimes take turns for people to sit with her. And my mum, you know, when I was talking about the bodily fluids uh, spilling out of her mouth, it was that that bad um, sometimes. My mum came running through and actually physically vomited. It was so such a horrific sight um, seeing that. And could you imagine seeing your own mum in a state like that, you know? And when Ali told me about that, that, that woman who was praying for her mum to die, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I was all I was almost praying for my grandma to die, and so was my grandma praying for herself to die. Um, and some of the things Ali was saying, you know, I, I remember me and Ali met up a few months ago, not long after it happened, and I was telling her what, what the story and stuff, and I said, you know, my grandma kept saying they wouldn't let an animal suffer like this. Why are they letting me? And Ali was like, Josh, it's that's one of the most common things we hear is people say they wouldn't let an animal suffer like this. Um, and, you know, some people think it's not a, a fair thing to say, saying they wouldn't let an animal suffer like this, but it's someone's, you know, if that's someone's feelings, then who are we to, to um, disagree with that? But, you know, um, so what have, I, what have I done since during the campaign, since my grandma died? Well, as part of my promise, and to be honest with you, it, it, it's it's probably helped me grieve the loss of my grandma and the difficulty of what she went through. I, I, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a campaigner, I'm an activist through and through. So if I see an injustice, I want to change it with every fibre of my being. Like, I've, I've, that's why I've, you know, been involved in things like drug reform, um, reforming the social care sector um, and, you know, LGBT rights and a load of other things. If I feel something unjust and people are not being treated fairly, it, 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 it drives me to, to push on and, and campaign for that. So, yeah, I got involved with Dignity and Die and we did. Um, I told my story in the hope that it could highlight, um, you know, some of the, the horrendous issues that, have, um, that people face on a day-to-day basis. Because this is ongoing right now. There's people suffering right now as we're talking on this Zoom call. People are in similar situations than what my grandma experienced and what I witnessed her go through. Um, and they're denied the right to, to end insufferable, intolerable pain. Um, why? Because some religious organisations don't agree with it. And, um, you know, there are some valid arguments about, you know, people's fear about um, when it sounds disabilities, people f- fear that it could be used as a way to, um, y- you know, not give disabled people the care that they should be receiving. But that's why it should be a rights-based approach up to the person. Um, so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been very busy in the past few months. I, I, I've really been meaning to do a lot more with dignity and dying but you know it's the nature of campaigning you're pulled in a million different directions but 
one of the things that I've been looking at is setting up a an SNP campaign group or um, lobbying group on dignity and dying. So I don't know SNP members in favour of dignity and dying, and it's something we can we can lobby um, our MSPs about. I mean, I've I've already contacted a, a number of parliamentarians, MPs, and MSPs on the matter, and there are there are a lot of supportive voices out there who are a bit apprehensive about coming forward publicly about it because you know there, there is a vocal minority of people who um they're scared of the backlash against it really um which is a shame but you know one of the things Ali touched upon as well and I was going to mention also is I when I, when I looked into this policy in, of, of um, dying with dignity, I came to the, real, the realisation that this, on the surface, it seems like it's an unjust thing. You know, people are denied the right to die, but but not everyone is, really, because if you have the resources and the money to fly off to Switzerland and go to Dignitas and, you know, take ownership of ending your 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 life if you choose to do that then there are people who can afford to do that there's there is that option and ali i think you mentioned the the cost of ten thousand pounds which is a huge number see for working class folk and from my family we are I, i've lived in working class from a working class family no one in my family has money or ever has you know all none of my friends or people i love and care about or know have money and if they you know became so severely ill that they had uh, such awful quality of life that they're in horrendous pain all the time they wouldn't have the option to do that but there are people out there that does so it, it is a class issue um i believe but the, the the policy definitely has to has to change i mean the overwhelming support in scotland is huge a policy um, to get dignity in dying um, as a policy in Scotland. I, I think it's. Did you mention it was eighty-seven percent? Massive. So why isn't that the case in Scotland? Well, there's a couple of thoughts I've got about that. Is you know, Parliament isn't representative of society, and that's often again a class thing. If you're um, from a you know, a more affluent background, you are more likely to be from a religious background if you're from an affluent, if you're middle class or whatever. And people from religious backgrounds are less likely to, um, you know, be against policy, which is really unfortunate because regardless of your religion and everything, it should be about a rights-based approach. But what needs to happen, um, you know, I think in this election, we've got a huge opportunity to um, change the law. And I think... You know, with an influx of new parliamentarians, there's fantastic, um, you know, young blood, fresh blood coming through, who are more representative um, of Scotland. I'm really hopeful, but it's something we really need to keep up the fight, um, talking about this issue, speaking to our parliamentarians about it, telling them that you believe um, that people should have the right to, to die with dignity and not suffer in intolerable pain, um, especially if they are towards the end of their lives already. So 
Um, I've probably missed loads of things to talk about, but that, that's the gist of what I wanted to say. So thank you everyone for, for listening to me. Thanks very much, Josh. Um, that was a really important contribution. And, and thanks as well, Ali, um, for what you'd said. Um, what we'll do now is we'll, we'll open it up to questions. So if anyone has a question, I think uh, Lynn Mowat, do you want to go ahead? I think you need your hand up. Oh, you're on mute just now. I was applauding rather than putting my hand Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no bother. Um, I, I'd like to quickly ask a question. Um, it was something that um, I had researched a few years ago um, was was assisted dying, and um, I was aware of the the model that's used, and I think it's Oregon in the US. So, what kind of model um, would be? Do you think would be ideal for for Scotland and how how it would work? Um, so that's a really good question, Rory. Um, so Dignity in Dying does work um, using the Oregon model. Oregon's had legislation in place uh, from 1997. There's over 20 years of evidence um, about how assisted dying has worked in Oregon, and it really has working, is working. Other countries, um, so the Australian legislation and the New Zealand legislation is very much based on that model too. There are European countries that have, have taken a different approach and have a much broader law and a much broader access criteria. Um, we know that what the we know the mid of the parliament. We did all our evaluation of the previous bills that went to Parliament and we also know that um, what the Scottish public are ready to support, what the Scottish Parliament is getting really ready, really, really close to majority to support is assisted dying for terminally ill, mentally competent adults and that's the proposals that we're working on alongside um, Friends at the End and Humanist Society Scotland and a group of MSPs currently in the Parliament um, who are very, very keen to see a bill drawn up on those terms taken forward. Right, Josh, do you want to come in on that or are you happy? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with, with what Alison said. Brilliant. Um, we've got a question from Gordon. Um, it says, Josh, Alison, two questions. Uh, one, do you foresee a Dignitas-like facility in Scotland? And two, rather than get a policy which is usually will likely face lots of resistance, could the Scottish Government create a fund so that the expense of travel to Switzerland was covered? Uh, I get it's kind of sweeping the issue under the carpet, but it might be easier and more importantly, quicker to implement. Josh, I'll jump in if that's okay. Alison, you're the, you're the expert, so <laughs> no. listen, you go. Um, I'm going to start with Switzerland. So at the moment, we outsource this problem to Switzerland. And I mentioned the 10,000 pounds as a social justice issue. It's not the only issue. The travel there, you have to be well enough to travel. Um, we told the story a couple of years ago of a man with motor neuron disease, Richard Selly, who went to Dignitas to die. Richard's wife, Elaine, has described in detail how torturous it was to take somebody in the end stages of motor neuron disease through Edinburgh Airport on a plane a hotel in Switzerland. People have to die without their family and friends around them, without the 
carers and the people who've been providing them with medical and social care support. They also, and this is the real cost, so on one level, the cost of going to Switzerland is 10,000 pounds. That's the inequity, but the real cost is that people have to travel far too soon. They die too early because they have to be fit and well enough to get on that plane and, and go to Switzerland. I've worked with one family who did it as a road trip. And again, um, it was a case of motor neuron disease. And somebody got in a car, went to Newcastle, got on a ferry, and then traversed the whole of Europe in a car without any of the simple things like hoists and toileting facilities and things that they really needed to support them at that, the last few days of their life. Switzerland isn't the answer. Assisted, safe assisted dying in Scotland is the answer. We do not see that this would in any way be like a Dignitas-style clinic. It would be people would receive um, a prescription for drugs that they would self-administer, they would take them themselves. Most people would do that in a hospital, hospice or home setting, and it's really an extension of their palliative care rather than that they go somewhere to die. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. We mentioned Oregon before. Um, so the other thing to, to really mention about Oregon is that 19% of people who have an assisted death are enrolled in a hospice-like palliative care programme. It's something that works hand in hand with the treatment and care that people are already receiving. And it's for the point at which they've suffered too much and can no longer go on, rather than it being a sort of like, I got my diagnosis, that's it, I'm off, green light off to Switzerland, um, which is definitely not something we'd encourage. I've forgotten the first question, sorry, Rory, I think I had So it is, uh, do you foresee a Dignitas-like ah. facility in Scotland? No, I rolled it into the second question, that's okay. No. <laughs> Great. Um, Karen, I think you've had your hand raised for a wee while. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just wanted to say that... Um, uh, you know, the Netherlands has had the stigmatism in dying for over 30 years. My husband's father, uh, who transitioned a couple of years before he died, um, she was allowed to have her friends round, sitting round her bed, said goodbye. The GP gave her the barbiturates that she needed. She took the barbiturates. When her friends went out walking, they came back and said goodbye to her body. Now, this is 30 years ago in the Netherlands. They've had this legislation in for a long time. You know, my, I, I wonder why the Scottish Parliament, and I get annoyed about this, there are a lot of legislators in the legislature of Scotland can't seem to get this legislation through. I've been told previously that it wasn't up to scratch before. But, you know, there are templates out there, and the Netherlands has had a template for over 30 years. I'm sure they've worked through all the problems that are going to arise after 30 years of of helping people die with dignity. So why why the Scottish Parliament not able to do this? What's what's gone wrong? I'll I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so there's been the two previous bill attempts in the Scottish Parliament. Now, the first, Margaret's first bill, 18 members supported, her second bill, 36 members supported. 
the last attempt, um, so Patrick Harvey picked up the bill from Margot when she sadly died and, and um, adopted and took forward the bill. That was in 2015. Um, when we ended the parliamentary session there, we did a bit of a count of if you took out the MSPs who are standing down, and you looked at the parliament um, in its current composition, we have a small majority now of MSPs in favour of assisted dying. And it's my fervent hope that as we make it through this election campaign, the new complement of MSPs um, will drive that majority further and further on and we will get it passed. There are very strong, very um, entrenched opponents in Scotland who have mentioned sort of faith groups. There's been um, some dissension within the medical community themselves, although they are also on a journey. And the last survey from the BMA showed the majority of doctors now in favour of assisted dying. Some of the Royal Colleges have moved their position as well from one of opposition to one of neutrality. That's going to be really, really huge in um, convincing MSPs that actually the medical will is there as well. The previous bills um, were quite broad. They were broad in scope and there was certainly some criticism levelled at, at the drafting and at the, the, the safeguarding criteria. It made it quite an easy win for opponents. We are looking at consulting far and wide and when this proposal, when it goes back before Parliament, the due diligence will have been done. The proposals will have been robustly and rigorously tested and it will be a, a, a top class bit of legislation. We're also, this time, so where are we, 2015, five, six, six years on, able to point to countries like Australia, like New Zealand, states like California, which, you know, in a second, um, made the amount of people around the world, citizens have the right to assisted die, and that just, <laughs> all of a sudden, 50 million people had that right. And I think these are the kind of questions that will be asked of parliamentarians now, rather than the sort of, um, please, can you do this? it's now going to be why aren't you doing this and that's going to really shift that emphasis and I think we're going to see the momentum is with us we're going to do it this time. Okay um Josh do you want to say anything? Yeah just a quick contribution um <clears throat> I know previous bills from Margot and, and Patrick have tried to tackle the issue quite head-on and take quite a broad approach to um dying with dignity um, so I wonder if a more incremental approach in legislation would, would work. Um, I'm sure Ali knows more about the work that's going on than I do. Um, but I, I wonder if that would be a, I'm posing a question myself really, <laughs> rather than a, than a comment, but I wonder if a more incremental approach to uh, dying with dignity would, would work in the Scottish Parliament, especially if there are parliamentarians who are sitting on the fence, who don't know their position on it because there are very strong views on both sides and you know some some concerns are valid um outcomes is born out of fear really um which is a shame that you know pe people who are who have disabilities don't always have faith in the social care system to to fully look after them um, but they feel that they could be 
you know, coerced into ending their lives early, which is, you know, I've worked in social care all my working career. I've n- never something I've witnessed um, ever before. Um, I'm actually really proud of the, the social care system in Scotland, but I think there's always room for improvement. But, you know, if we do take an incremental approach that allows people who are apprehensive to build confidence in the system, so then they can go a little bit further and see how it goes and allow that allow people to continue that journey of building confidence in, in um, our social care system, especially in regards to dying with dignity. I've got a slight, slightly different approach here. Um, I just need to be really upfront. Dignity in Dying's aim is to secure assisted dying for dying people. Um, I don't have another objective in the cupboard that I'm going to kind of bring out once we achieve that. Um, it is to give terminally ill, mentally competent adults the right to an assisted death. Uh, yeah, I'm so, sorry, I, I hope I didn't get, like, come across as not, if I was... Not, not at all. I'm just, oh. People often say, like, the slippery slope, and I would say not at all. Oregon's had the same legislation yeah. for 20-odd years. The laws you enact for the laws you get, um, and we, we can put the safeguards in and create the law that we want, the law that will pass Parliament. What I do think is an iterative approach is that I think the right to an assisted death is part of a much bigger journey of person-centred care and empowerment in healthcare and decision-making and that really shared decision-making um, taking place that we all want and need. Um, we've seen justices, for example, where people didn't have those conversations, where things were doctor-led rather than person-led. That's the bigger change that we really need to see. Is Alex, Alex really um, it's really interesting you, you saying person-centred approach because <laughs> that's just triggered a, a memory in, in my brain, you know, working in social care, everything we do in social care, when we when we speak to um, people, whether, whether they're you know disabled or elderly in palliative care, whatever it is, it's always about taking a person-centred approach it's drilled into every per every cater, every everyone out there who's supporting people. But it always seems to be taking a person-centered approach until the person's dying. <laughs> you know, until they have the choice. Well, until the person's dying when they're, they're actually, it's actually, you know, we're going to deny you the right to take a person-centered approach. We're going to deny you the right to to end your life, even though you're in such intolerable pain. Um, it's, it's to me, it, it baffles me, um, and I know Ali that Dignity Died and I'm fully supportive of the campaign is only about people who are dying terminally ill. Um, but I was just trying, maybe I didn't word it right, yeah. but it, it is some people who are disabled think it will be a slippery slope, um, and that's nothing that we are not advocating that at all. I'm not advocating that. I'm very passionate about um, empowering people with disabilities to live life to their fullest. Um, that's my background, my working background. Um, so just to give that assurance out there. I'm just going to work through the questions. Um, so I know some people have had their hands up, so I'm trying to do them in order. Um, so from Marlene, what is the current situation? Say I helped a close relative friend to die after they've expressed a clear wish to die, would I be liable to prosecution? Yes. Yes. And in Scotland, we don't have the 
Um, we don't have the assisting a suicide law. We don't have the Suicide Act that we have in England and Wales. So it would be um, culpable homicide that you would be prosecuted for, um, potentially prison sentence, 14 years. Um, we do have this loophole in Scotland where we don't have that law. Um, it's a law that allowed, it was Keir Starmer at the time, um, once he was the, the DPP, uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, to bring in guidelines around compassionate, and if, if someone could be proved to be compassionate, that somebody wouldn't be prosecuted. That doesn't apply in Scotland, only in England and Wales. So it would be prosecuted under culpable homicide. Thank you. Um, Sophie asks, how can you ensure bringing a law like this, and you've already kind of touched on this, how can you ensure bringing a law like this into action does not widen it in X amount of years from terminal adults who are mentally competent to absolutely anyone who wants to end their life. We've seen the law widening countries such as Canada and New Zealand. Is this likely to happen here? So the law is not widened in New Zealand. It's just been introduced in New Zealand. They've just passed. It went to a, a referendum and there was a majority, 62.5% of New Zealand's voted in favour. Um, in Canada, it's slightly different. It was the Supreme Court that widened the law through uh, court cases that were taken to the Supreme Court, which challenged Canada's constitution and its Human Rights Act. So it's been the Canadian courts that have instructed the Canadian Parliament to act on widening the law. We have a situation in Scotland and the wider UK where the courts have bounced this back to Parliament repeatedly. It's a sort of brinkmanship that's waiting for someone to blink, whether it's the courts or Parliament. But the courts have been really clear this needs to be settled in our Parliament. The Scottish Parliament has the powers. It can, it, assisted dying is a devolved issue. Um, it will be Holyrood that decides the scope of our law. And what I would reiterate again is that the law you enact is the, the law you get. Any changes to the scope of that law would go through rigorous parliamentary process. And believe me, it's, it's, it's a real job getting this law passed, never mind extending it anywhere else. So I'm fairly confident that a, a law that gives dying people the peace of mind that they need, that's the law we pass, that's the law Scotland will have. Thanks very much. Um, Colin Milne had asked, why do you think Margot Macdonald was unable to persuade the Parliament to approve her bill and how do you propose to succeed? Um, Margot, what a woman, what an absolute indomitable warrior and, and um, I'm very, very uh, sad that, that she will be around to see this bill pass when it does, which it will, I'm certain. Um, I think we need to just acknowledge that we've been on a rights-based journey and where we were when Margot brought the first bill in 2010 um, is very far away from where we are now. I think I've touched a little bit on there was maybe some problems with the drafting of the legislation and the scope of that bill. It's also worth saying that um, and I'm going to aim this actually at both parliaments, at Westminster and the Scottish Parliament. We have some of the most small C conservative parliaments in the world. And it, social justice fights take a really long time, as, as you, as campaigners and activists, you know. 
they take time, but the, our time has come with the, the sort of recovery and rebuilding after the pandemic. I, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, it, there has never been a better time to reform how we die as we look at how we're going to move on and live. And that we've got a chance now to really create a new standard of dying in Scotland, one that's fit for the 21st century and meets all of our dying citizens' needs. And I think that that impetus, the, the sort of timing, the political journey we've been on, the acceptance of a rights-based culture, and the very fact that people like Josh, um, people like Norman Tracy, who I mentioned, Richard Selly, who went to Dignitas, are really speaking up, telling their stories, and making that very emotional appeal that shows what the problem is with how people have to die right now is going to get us over the line. Josh, do you want to um, contribute to that? I do it with the next question. Um, just a, a, a general point, you know, on, on the topic. I, I remember, you know, you know, quite often when we're looking at legislation, a lot of the personal aspect um, of dying with dignity is, is lost. Um, I actually, you know, remember I was talking to a friend in the SNP who is on the opposite side of me in, in this debate. Um you know, when I, when, I, when I was saying, well, this is why I believe in why people should have the right to, to die in dignity um, and take ownership of ending their lives. You know, the, the, the person said, actually, you shouldn't be talking about um, your personal scenario with your grandma because it makes people very uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of approach to me, I thought, geez, that sort of approach to me thought, well, don't we always advocate for people to, to talk about their lived experience? Lived experience should be at the very heart of, of our policy making all the time. So um, I do hope, you know, when the time comes to, to pass legislation that people's lived experience and, you know, the experience of people who, who have now passed away is at the heart of the legislation uh, that's passed. Thanks very much. So I know that uh, Gillian did have her hand up, but you've also written a question. Do you want to? Do you want me to read it out? Or hi there. Um, I just my background is as a palliative care doctor, and I suppose I was just wondering. Um, it's it's so hard to hear your story, um, and how hard things were with your grandma, and I'm just so sorry actually that you had to go through those those days Josh and um, I I guess if what we would have hoped for would that you might have been able to get a hospice place um, because that kind of caring involvement from a, a relative is, is, is really hard um, and I suppose what we'd hope to try and do is to improve the secretions um, by medication so that you wouldn't have to aspirate like you had to um, and that that's something that we do do you know on, on, on you know on, on a regular basis so I'm, I'm just so sorry you had that that really difficult experience um, and but also just to say that we would hope that there would be more and, and better hospice facilities so that you would have maybe had access to that. Yeah, um, my grandma was offered hospice, um, but she she didn't want it. She wanted to die in her own home. Okay. And as a family, we did support that. Um, and I keep saying, you know, it was horrendous doing 
those things for my grandma. Um, but, you know, I want to support her right to die in her home comfortably. Um, and although what, what, I, what the family witnessed was horrible, mm-hmm. it, it is nothing in comparison to what she was going through. Mm-hmm. Even though she was on high doses of morphine, every time she wake up, she would, oh, sore. Oh, and she would call the nurse, doctor, can you come out? And they would promptly come out um, and, and, and help with that. But, you know, it, it just highlights the, the issue, whether my grandma was in a hospice or at home, Mm-hmm. You know, should still be in that unbearable pain. Should still be really uncomfortable. You know, we're we're told, you know, we'll do everything we can to make your grandma comfortable. There was nothing comfortable about what she was going through at mm-hmm. all. Um, and it's not anything to do with the care she received. She received the best care, no matter how good good doctors or palliative carers are at the job. There's always going to be people who are going through that intolerable, unbearable circumstances that, that you shouldn't have to live through if you choose to end it if you choose not to go through it basically um but but thank you for for um like your contribution julian i really, really appreciate you asking that okay and i think uh, tim if you want to go next i'm really glad to follow julian and it's actually a point that makes me really angry um i looked after somebody who died at home and we we had full package of care in place but the key thing was that we didn't understand about the whole thing about choice he thought that he could refuse treatment and that he would die and i we had this terrible vigil that lasted i think maybe ten, eight eight days of sitting beside somebody watching them taking an aspirin and he was begging to die i was begging the doctor to kill him and this the, the doctor and I, and this is recent. The doctors won't. The doctor killed my grandmother, you know. And we were glad. We, 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 we. My grandmother was glad. We were all glad it happened. So this, this reluctance, this reluctance amongst doctors is new. And I felt, I felt that the doctor was outsourcing their ethical dilemma to me, because this person I loved was begging, was begging me to kill him. And I wanted to kill him, but I couldn't risk prison. And we were in that situation for eight days. And, and in terms of what Josh was saying, this was somebody who wanted to die at home. We did what we could for for that to happen in as loving and a kind of way as we could, and it was hell. And we were horribly let down by the medical by the doctors who did the best they could because they said it would be comfortable. And as Josh said, there's no way on earth that, that, that we can be comfortable, but that could be comfortable. And I think for that, there's two things that come from that. One of them is how do we help people know actually what the law is now that they don't have these choices that if they wait the choices will be taken away from them and they will be they will have every ounce of dignity drained from them by the medical profession and it's the medical profession's choice not the patient's choices and I was left feeling so angry so bitter and so traumatized and so deeply alone by the whole thing. I suppose I remember um, Tim you know I, I, I pleaded with the doctors and nurses to do something um, but this is their jobs they they've got a family to feed they can't really i, I fully sympathize with them oh, and, i i i understand i i understand that and i mean i i but it was it was that they were this, this is something that doctors used to do on a routine basis and it's in recent years partly because of Harold Shipman, the doctors have become afraid to do it but this was normal 
It was a normal part of care, and now doctors are refusing to do it. And it just leaves, and people, most people don't realise that's what's going to happen to them, unless they're lucky. Yeah, I, I suppose that doctors and nurses are would be feeding for, you know, their jobs and livelihoods oh. facing prison nowadays because. And, and this is why legislation is needed. Absolutely, yeah. This is why legislation is needed. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm so sorry about your experience, Tim. Um, what you said there about feeling it was outsourced ethically to you. Um, I spoke with a family recently who talked about how they actually sat around a table working out who could help somebody die because who had the sort of like least to lose, who wasn't involved in their business or didn't have young children or, you know, if, if the worst came to the worst, who'd be the best person to be responsible? Um, which is, you know, just a, a horrible thing for a grieving family to go through. What I would say about the old days, um, absolutely, that's what we've heard too. And that there was very much a big culture change around um, the provision of painkillers after shipment. Um, and that people now actually don't get the level of, of, of pain relief that they're really um, are needing sometimes. But what I would be really kind of keen to point out is that um, that was still a doctor making a decision rather than someone making a decision for themselves. And it's that power balance we need to really shift that this is an autonomous decision from an individual about what they want and that we provide them with the respect they need to know what they want and the means with which to, to achieve that. Thank you. Um, so um, next on that was uh, Gordon had asked a question and then we'll go to Karen afterwards. Um, Hopefully we'll manage to squeeze Cat uh, in at the end. Uh, how does the proposed legislation define who and how many can define an illness as terminal and how imminent is terminal? I.e. are we talking probability of death within two years or within two months? So the Scottish Parliament recently unanimously changed the definition of terminal illness. Um, well, not changed, sorry, they clarified the definition of terminal illness and it was to do with the provision of social security. So the Scottish government now um, defines a terminal illness or as being clinically um, defined. So it's two doctors that say if somebody is terminally ill rather than any prognosis period. So it's not like, oh, if you've got, if we think you've got 12 months to live your terminal, it's the two doctors say you have a terminal condition. That's now the, the Scottish government definition of, definition of terminal. Okay, and uh, Karen? Yeah, I just wanted to address something that Gillian said earlier. So my, my, my dad was lucky enough to get into Roxburgh House and he was in there for about five weeks and he had great care in Roxburgh House. But I would say that I, I suffered huge guilt from the fact that, you know, my dad was, was a rigger. He worked on the oil rigs. He was a shop steward. He was a very strong man. And, uh, you know, he, he, he withered into being a shell of, of himself. I was surprised how he could survive so long with such a small amount of body fat. Um, but he did. He, he, he survived for a long time. And I saw him beg the nurse to help him to die more quickly, which was painful to watch him ask that and also painful to watch was his body being turned around by two young nurses 
I know that I knew that my dad would not want this. This was this is the problem. It's the undignified aspect of it for, for you know, that, that that really bothered me. And the other thing that really bothered me right at the end was he was sedated so heavily. There's really no knowing whether he was in pain or not. I don't really know that that was possible to gauge at all. And really, fundamentally, he died from um, starvation and dehydration. I, don't, I just don't think it's acceptable that people die like that nowadays. Yeah, um, that's, that's what, what you're saying, Karen. There is is very similar to how my my grandma went. So basically, the doctors and my grandma chose that she would die from starvation and um, dehydration, um, but they would just draw out over a period of thirteen days rather than an immediate thing. So that they drew it out so long, made her life so intolerable and horrendous um, because they both decided, doctors and nurses and my grandma together. That, that was it, no more, she's going to die now. Um, but they just, <laughs> we've got this weird system, rather than just, you know, helping my grandma go peacefully with dignity um, and, you know, by her choice. But it was just, it's a bit of a strange system, if you ask me, um, because there is things in place to, you know, to help people along the way, such as taking them off food and fluids. So we'll do. We'll go to Chris in the meantime, and we'll see if we can get Kat. So what I would say, um, first off, is I'm very supportive of this. Um, we had Dignity and Dying in our branch a couple of years ago, and, you know, it was a very powerful experience. Um, I was very pleased to see Josh's resolution come up last year for a November conference, and I was very disappointed at the reception it got on the committee that decides whether these things go to conference or not. Because there's a degree of institutional political cowardice about this sort of matter, it's a very hard issue. I appreciate that. There's a lot of objections from a variety of perspectives about these sort of issues. Um, you know, we saw, however, recently in Ireland, how you can overcome these issues. You allow politicians to wash their hands of them. You put them to a citizens' assembly and you let the citizens make the decision. And then the politicians don't have to own it. The citizens own it. Um, I would like to see the SNP put this issue to a citizens' assembly in the next parliament. I know it's something that, you know, it's almost universal consensus amongst the public. But you know, it was 70-odd percent when Marco's bill didn't go through. These people are, well, I'm, I hesitate to say the word cowards, but, you know, that's that's the long and the short of it. They're not going to vote in the majority for it because none of them wants to be carrying the can for it. So what I would say is if, Josh, you wanted to produce another version of that resolution that I'm looking at right here that, called for this to be put to the citizens of Scotland for them to make the final decision. Um, I would be happy to help you write it and I will absolutely sponsor it. I will put my name on it and make sure that I do my absolute damnedest to ensure that it's on either the next conference agenda or the one after that. Because it's unacceptable in this day and age that we essentially torture our elderly relatives to death 
to solve the consciences of people that are not in the room and never will be. So, um, I'd be interested as well as hearing from Alison what actual plans you have for bringing it to the chamber at present, because obviously none of the parties are going to present it as a bill. So I'd be interested to hear about that. Thanks. I'll come in really quickly just to answer that one and then can go back to Josh on the politics. So what we do know is that there'll be no whip to vote against or for. It's seen as a sort of um, free vote, a uh, matter of conscience vote, um, as, as you maybe, maybe know it. Um, there are members of the, the Scottish Government currently that are very supportive and we have a cross-party group of MSPs that we work with um, we've got that support built in from each party in the parliament currently. Um, and those members have worked together um, with myself and, and the other organisations I work with on a draft bill that will be presented eventually as a, a private members bill in the next parliament. I was very, very keen for this to go to the, the, the round of citizens assemblies that took place. Um, I think it would have been an excellent, excellent thing for, for, for the Citizens' Assembly to have tackled. And I completely agree with you on the politics of it. I actually worry now that that would hold us up, that we're really actually so close. We've got that majority at the moment in Parliament and we'll know um, if everybody asks their candidates to tell us what their position is. Um, I know the votes are not being counted overnight this time, so I, I was going to say we'll know on May the 7th, but we won't, we'll know about what May the 12th, um, if we've got the numbers that we need in Parliament to, to push that button and, and get that bill um, up and running. So it might be that at the moment, while a Citizens Assembly would absolutely have been the ideal place for it this time, maybe 18 months ago, that it could potentially actually slow things down. Um, However, I absolutely wouldn't rule it out. There is a current bill going through the Irish Parliament, the Dying with Dignity Bill, um, and it looks very likely that it will go to a Citizens' Assembly in Ireland as well. However, that bill in Ireland passed its second reading. We're seeing a bill has passed the Portuguese Parliament, the Spanish Parliament, and it's had its second reading in Ireland. I think Scotland's going to look, and the Parliament is going to look so out of step if um, if we don't get the, the majority of MSPs behind us. Thank you, Chris, for, for, for asking that. Touching on what Alex said, if we are at the stage where we, I don't have to take this to SP conference, where there are enough parliamentarians to get it over the line um, and get it legislated on, then fantastic. If we're not at that stage um, come May after the elections, then absolutely, um, I'd be more than happy to work with you on redrafting something. Um, we can get in touch with Ali and she can have some input in helping us coordinate and draft that as well. I'm sure Ali would be happy to, to support us with that. Um, but let's see what happens in May. Um, give ourselves a kick up the arse and you know, get in touch with our parliamentarians and put that well, or candidates, you'll say, in there. Uh, ask them to support this or ask them what their position on the, the issue is and um, we can all do that our local candidates who are who are what all SNP here ask our SNP candidates what their position on it is and feed it back and see what see what folk are saying about it 
And I, I think that answers um, a really good one to end on, um, because it's obviously really positive that the legislation uh, is progressing. Um, there's great potential to see it in the next parliament and also a wee call to action there as well, that if um, the whole point of the Commonweal Group is to make change happen, it's not about talking, it's about doing. So if you want to get involved with that campaign, the people to speak to are Ali and Josh. So you can either get in touch with them directly through Dignity and Dine's website, or if you email the Commonweal Group, we can put you in touch as well with Josh or Ali and make sure that um, you're able to play a part in the campaign to make it a reality because it sounds like it's it's almost it's coming up to the, the line and it just needs a final wee bit to, to push it over push it over the the edge. So um Ali and Josh, do you want to make any final comments before we close? Just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a pleasure to come and talk to um such a supportive group. I love the focus on action. Please, please get in touch with your candidates, um, ask at hustings, write a letter to your local paper. Uh, our clear message is assisted dying is an election issue because it's a real life issue affecting people up and down the country every day. Um, so on May the 6th, show your support and, um, and, and vote for the people of Scotland who really need this, this legislation. Yeah, what Ali said, I can't say any more than that. <laughs> uh, thank you for inviting me along, Rory, and the Commonwealth Group. Brilliant. Thank you all. Thank you for coming. And uh, we'll be in touch soon with future events. Take care. You've been listening to the Changing Minds Moving Forward series of programmes run every week here on Indolive Radio. And that was a public meeting organised by the SNP Commonweal Group. It was chaired by Rory Steele and the main speakers were Ali Thompson of Dignity and Dying Scotland and Josh Menny, an assisted dying campaigner. Since that meeting, we've moved into the new session of Parliament. Already an assisted dying bill has been introduced and it will start its passage through Parliament very shortly. If you'd like to find out anything more about that, probably the best thing to do is go straight to the Dignity in Dying Scotland website. That's Dignity in Dying Scotland, all one word, dot org dot uk. And I'll just finish by saying thanks again to SNP Commonweal Group for letting us share your meeting and we're very pleased at being able to broadcast out across Scotland, get information like this out to a wider audience.